The book of Judges. We are uh, started a new series last week, and we're going to continue that for a few weeks in October and into November. And today, uh, I've entitled the message, Let the Judges Begin. <laughs> you know, last week we uh, uh, introduced the book of Judges uh, by talking about the reason God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, needed judges. And judges were a series of leaders that God raised up to lead Israel out of their sinful behaviors that uh, resulted from their failure to finish the complete and total destruction uh, of the pagan cultures that lived in, in uh, this promised land that they were uh, given by God in Canaan. Uh, they, just re they just wouldn't eliminate the pagan influence, the pagan people and the influence. Um, God wanted them to, to either kill them or drive them completely out of the land. Men, women, and children. We might look at that and think, that seems kind of cruel. Uh, but that's, that's what God wanted. All influence, because women and children can influence us in the wrong way too. Uh, and it often happened when they would, would marry a pagan woman. Um, he also wanted them to destroy and eliminate all the pagan temples and all the idols that were there. Uh, but Israel just didn't do that. Uh, rather, uh, after the, de defeating the armies that they faced, they, they then allowed the people to stay in the land, uh, and they tolerated their pagan ways. And as God predicted, it, it didn't take long for Israel to not just tolerate them, but they began to participate in their ways. Uh, they began to worship their false gods, of all things, uh, because they, they had no godly person to lead them uh, uh, after Joshua died. They did whatever their flesh wanted. Uh, they indulged in the evil that surrounded them, um, uh, the evil lifestyles of the pagans. And one component of evil <clears throat> is the powerful potential to desensitize us. You know, evil can make, can make you slowly, little by little, begin to rationalize and to accept sin and sinful lifestyles uh, in our life. Um, there's a pagan temple right next door. You know, and every time you walk by, you see the pretty pagan women going in there to worship. Uh, and then you stop and talk one day to one of them, and you develop a friendship, and you get married, and you want to please your new wife, right? So you go to the pagan temple with her one day, and you kind of like the lifestyle of the pagans. Uh, you know, there's less restriction, there's less commitment in their lifestyle and their religion. So you open the door to ungodliness to come into your life, and once ungodliness gets in, you begin to embrace it. You begin to make excuses for it. Rationalize it. Well, that's not so bad, really, if you think about it. And you move farther and farther and farther away from the true God and His truth until you just abandon Him. And, and with Israel, it happened over and over and over again uh, when they tolerated evil around them. And it's still happening today. 
You know, isn't that what's happening in our American culture today? Uh, I, I believe that the primary reason that our culture is in such chaos uh, is because we have been tolerating evil for decades in this country. You know, we have allowed sin in our lives, and we, we've redefined it, we've, we've rationalized it, we've made excuses for it. It's really not that bad, is it, when you think about it? You know, we have allowed sin in our lives, uh, and, and, and not only do we dismiss evil as irrelevant today, but even as Christians, so often we participate in it. Bible scholar Rob Fleener wrote this, When followers of Jesus lose the capacity to detect evil, they lose the capacity to perceive good. The two are inseparable. Sensitivity to the Spirit of God decreases as indifference to evil becomes commonplace. That's where we are uh, in America today. That's where Israel was. was. Uh, They had no leader to keep them focused when Joshua died. Uh, so they married men and women uh, who were pagans, and they ab- abandoned God uh, as they embraced their, their husband and wife's God uh, and their lifestyle. And as a punishment um, to teach them a lesson, God allowed them then to be conquered and oppressed by these pagans that they had tolerated. And when they cried out to God for help, Finally, starting to see the mistakes that they had made, as he always does, God had mercy on them, and he raised up judges to try to lead them back to where they needed to be. And so the first judge that we read about in the book of Judges was Othniel. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Othniel. There are several of the judges throughout that we have just a little short uh, description of them. Uh, We don't know a lot about him, but let's read what we do know about Othniel. It's Judges uh, chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishatham, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered them. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So God was good at at letting Israel blindly wallow in their bad behavior until they would finally open up their eyes uh, and they could see how stupid they were being. Uh, And then uh, when that happened, then they would cry out to God, Lord, help us, we were wrong, please forgive us. And then he would always I step in to rescue them from their own horrible choices. Here they found themselves in slavery uh, uh, to the pagans that were around them because they tolerated and accepted and adopted their evil lifestyles. But even though they, they caused their very own misery, it was their fault, God was always willing to help them and to help them find their way back home. That's the kind of God we serve, isn't it? As long as there is life in us, in us, as long as we're breathing, if we see the error of our ways and we decide to turn back to God, God is always willing to take us back with open arms. 
Jesus illustrated this characteristic of God when he told the story of the prodigal son that so many of us are familiar with. You know, even though the youngest son uh, uh, made a horrible decision in his life, he, he decided to take advantage of his father and abandon his father, even though his father had been so good to him. When the son finally came to his senses, uh, the Bible says there in Luke chapter 15, and decided to come home, uh, what was the father's reaction? He was waiting there, looking down the road, waiting for his son, hoping that his son would come home. And, and when he did, he welcomed him back. No questions asked, no condemnation. You're my son. I take you back because I love you. You know, we don't know the details, but Othniel, uh, a leader who served God, led the Israelites to victory over their oppressors, the, the king of Aram. Remember last week I, I said that there was many, many, many kingdoms in the, in the promised land. This was one of them, the king of Aram. And under Othniel's leadership, there was peace in the land for 40 years until he died. Until he died. But right on cue, as soon as Othniel died and his godly influence and leadership was gone, Israel couldn't get back to evil fast enough. <laughs> Judges 8 or 3, uh, 12 through 14. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is also known as Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Again, the, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How many times in the Old Testament do we read a phrase like that? Um, sometimes it was against, about all of Israel. Sometimes it was against their king. Uh, but you read that phrase over and over again. It's a recurring phrase that, that we see throughout the history of Israel. And each time it seems like they get a little bit more evil than they did before. You know, evil, have you noticed, is always progressive. You know, evil, evil never stabilizes. Okay, that's as evil as I'm going to get. <laughs> I'm not going to indulge any more than just this in my life. It always gets worse. Haven't we witnessed that in our country today? Uh, our, our country is morally unrecognizable from just five years ago. You know, while the very young among us might wonder, well, what's the big deal, Mark? It's not that bad, is it? Uh, but we who are older, we, we know what it has been. Uh, uh, and we recognize that our moral standard of God has been abandoned. And how destructive our country, what a, a destructive path our country is on right now. Because evil never stabilizes. It always progresses. And it will continue to compress, uh, progress until we cry out to God and repent and come back to Him. That's why it's so important that we teach our children and our grandchildren what God's will is. You know, you and I really have no control other than elections and, you know, how, you know how that can go. Uh, but we have no control over the government and what they teach and, and, and what, they, what they're doing really, uh, but we can't, we do have control over our children and our grandchildren. 
We need to teach them why it's important to follow God uh, and His will. You know, we cannot rely on others to teach our children. If you have no choice but to depend on public schools for your children, and, and many parents only have that choice, uh, we, we've got to counter what they hear at school with God's truth. Help them see how vital it is that they embrace God's will in their lives and re- reject anything that's opposed to that. Anything that they hear, maybe from their teacher or their peers or on social media. It, that's our job as parents and grandparents, to teach our children God's will. And while we must love the sinner, we cannot tolerate their sin. We must reject it and we must flee from it. Or we will end up embracing it just as Israel did. I think God is is doing to us just as he did to Israel today. Uh, He's letting us wallow in the evil that's around us until we get so desperate that we all cry out to him for help. And remember, as individuals and as a church, uh, we don't have to wait for everybody else to join us to cry out to God. Um, We can do that as individuals and as a congregation right now ourselves. Cry out to God uh, in repentance and for help. We can reject evil from our own lives. I can't reject evil out of your life, but I can reject it out of my life. And we can teach our children, and we can teach our grandchildren to do the same, to eliminate evil from their lives and to stay away from it. And by doing so, we can be the beacon of hope for others to follow. Remember, and we've got to keep this in mind, and it's hard for some of us to do, we cannot put our hope in government. We cannot put our hope in government because they are not our salvation. Our hope can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Israel placed themselves right back in the mouth of evil until it got so bad again that they cried out to God for help. And as a result, uh, as always, God, who loved them, God answered their cry and sent them another judge. The second judge was Ehud. Ehud. Israel's second judge is our first judge where we have some details about his life and and, and what he did. And it's a very interesting story if if you're familiar with it. In fact, it's the kind of story that you might uh, uh, incorporate in some kind of adventure movie. Uh, or at least a scene in an an adventure movie, something you might see in the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or something like that, you know, where the villain gets it in the end. Let's look at Judges 3.15. And again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. A couple of important characteristics we'll talk about. Many times when God gave them over to an enemy, they they weren't always imprisoned or enslaved necessarily. Uh, In fact, many times part of their oppression was that they had to pay tribute to or a a tax, some kind of monetary payment that they had to pay to their enemy. So part uh, part of their, their profits that they might have from their crops or their flocks Instead of being able to use it for themselves and their family or or their tribe, uh, they had to give it to the conquering king. 
And if they didn't give it to the conquering king, they, they might be imprisoned or enslaved or punished harshly in some way. So Ehud's first task as Israel's judge was to personally deliver the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, who was the oppressor. Let's look at verse 16 through 19. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubic long, it's about 18 inches, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the sown images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The, the text describes King Eglon as a, a very obese man. Now, this was not meant to make fun of him, uh, but to describe a characteristic that was pretty uncommon for agrarian uh, culture. You know, it was very unusual for people who lived mostly on the land, uh, having to grow their own food and working hard, uh, who when they did eat, they mostly ate food that was good for them. And so it was very unusual for people of that culture to be obese. Now, you know, that, that's true in, in many countries around the world. When we were over in Ghana, uh, you know, you never ever see an obese person there because for them, it's because they don't have enough food. Uh, they're very, all of them are very thin. Uh, when I was in Japan, uh, you rarely saw an obese person in Japan, I think basically because of their seafood-based diet. Uh, a doctor that I was speaking to recently talked about uh, her trip to uh, Budapest, to Hungary, uh, Budapest, Hungary, and, and uh, where her brother lived. And um, she said that no one there is obese either. For them, it's because they don't have cars. They walk or ride their bike everywhere. And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of cultures where Obesity is very, very rare, and it certainly was uh, during this time as well. But it seems that Eglin, the king, uh, was, and he, and, and he took advantage of his power and his wealth, and he ate, and he ate, and he ate much more than the average person did, paying for it with an unhealthy weight. Now, this is going to play a big part in the story in just a minute. The money was delivered, the, the tribute was delivered, and the party set off to go back home. But Ehud, just as they passed an area that was filled with some of these idols, the false gods, he decided he was going to go back to see the king again alone this time. And when he got there, he whispered in the king's ear, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. Now, if this were a TV show, this is where we'd have a commercial. Uh, all right, so we have the commercial and uh, Geico, some kind of funny thing from Geico. And then we come back, uh, back from the commercial. They replay the scene. Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. But this time you see the smile on the king's face. Ooh, a secret message. Let's look and see what that message was. Uh, verse uh, 19 through 23. The king said to his descendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. <laughs> Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. <laughs> 
Mm. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And he was gone. You know, hoping to receive more money, maybe. Or maybe he, he was hoping to hear that all, how much all the people loved him uh, back uh, among the Israelites. He, uh, the king sent his attendants away. You guys get out of here. I, I want to get this message. And he left himself alone with Ehud. Now, the word translated message there could also be translated thing. So it could be, O king, I have a message for you from God. Or, O king, I have a thing for you from God. I mm, wonder what that thing could be. The thing was his short sword, his little 18-inch sword that he had hidden on his right thigh. Now, Ehud was a, a left-handed man. I don't know if you ever tried to do anything left-handed, you right-handers. How many left-handers do we have? Got both of you? Okay. Over here? All right. There was only, what, three among the group? Oh, up here? Up here? Okay. Four among this group. Okay, not very many. Most people in the world are right-handed, right? Right? Um, uh, according to one source, and, and this kind of shocked me, about 9.2% of people on earth are left-handed. Wow, that's, that's smaller than I thought it would be. And uh, according to this site, um, that's uh, just over 700 million people in the world are left-handed. Well, in, in the ancient world, the population was much less, so there would be even less left lefties. Uh, and in some cultures, left-handers are even forbidden to use their left hand um, because the left hand is considered unclean. If you want to know why it's considered unclean, you'd, you'd need to look that up. <clears throat> and so they were forced to use their right hand. Uh, well, interesting fact about uh, the, the Benjamites, which Ehud was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. The, the Benjamites were famous for having a lot of left-handed people. Hmm. Or at least they had the ability to be left-handed. You see, in fact, their armies were, were often trained to be ambidextrous on purpose. Righties were taught to fight with their left hand and lefties were taught to fight with their right hand. Uh, and this gave them an advantage over their enemies, sort of like the Inigo Montoya in the Princess Bride movie. I know something you don't know, if you know that movie. Uh, the term translated left-handed literally in the Hebrew means bound in his right hand. Uh, Ehud may have been a righty, but just knew how to fight with his left hand. See, what they would do is, for lefties, or for righties, they would bound your right hand during training and force you to learn to fight with your left hand, thus bound in his right hand. So Ehud may have been ambidextrous, maybe not naturally, uh, but because he had trained to be that way. But anyway, he was very proficient with his left hand. The king's attendants, when he had come back to talk to the king, would have naturally inspected Ehud for weapons to see if he had any. But they would not be expecting a left-handed person because hardly anybody was left-handed. So they would likely have only checked his left side, which is where a right-handed person would put his sword or his weapon. The attendants left, and the king was alone 
with Ehud. Ehud approached the king who sat on his throne. I have a message. I have a thing for you from God, king. What is it? What could it be? (gasps) And Ehud said, it's this. And so he reaches with his left hand and pulls out the sword and plunges it into his large belly. Um, And the bowels poured out so hard that the, the, the hilt of the the sword was engulfed by his belly. His bowels poured out, and he had left the sword there. I think that was wise. <laughs> I would have left it there too. Then he shuts the door. He lo- shuts and locks the door of the room, and he sneaks out by the porch. Let's read what happened after that. Twenty-four through twenty-six. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he, he did not open the doors of the room, they looked, took a key and unlocked them. There they found their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Eglin, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. And because the attendants didn't want to disturb the king, who they thought was going to the restroom, uh, they waited. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited until it got awkward. (laughs) Something's going on here. So they unlocked the door. They finally went in, and they found their king dead, and it was not a pretty sight. You would not be able to unsee that, what they saw. And meanwhile, Ehud gets away, and he goes back to his people in triumph. Let's read verse 27 through 30. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with them from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. 80 years this time. Pretty good ending, right? Pretty good ending. Ehud rallied the people. They defeated the Moabites, and now the Moabites are subject to Israel. Turn of events. And that lasted 80 years. You know, that's about three generations. I think about 80 years. What has happened in 80 years? Uh, the, 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 the direction of my mom's life and all, all the, the things that, that took place. Uh, for three generations, Israel was somewhat back on track. At least they were headed in the right direction. Led by Ehud, and God was with them and blessed them. So, great story, right? Uh, if we just finished there, we'd say, hey, that was a great story. But let's go farther and, and think about what about this story? What, what, is, what is a lesson or lessons that we can learn from the second judge? Well, I've, I've picked out one lesson. We could probably find many, but I've picked out one. And, and, and it's this. You know what? As we go through life, you and I need a good weapon. A good weapon. We need a special weapon if we're going to be victorious. Ehud had a special weapon that he made just for this job of taking out the king of Moab. It was a double-edged sword. Uh, It was like a little hobbit-sized sword, uh, about 18 inches long, just perfect to conceal and to do the job 
And with this sword, Ehud planned to kill evil, the king of Moab. The Apostle Paul describes the struggle that you and I as followers of Jesus experience every day. And it's the very exact same struggle uh, that Israel battled. The struggle to resist evil. It wasn't the Moabites that they needed to defeat. It was evil. Let's look at what Paul says uh, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the Moabites, uh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Israel's battle was not, again, against the Moabites and other pagan cultures. It was against the influence of evil that was within those cultures. The pagan or ungodly lifestyles of the pagans was, was, was just tempting to the flesh, just like it is today. And the Israelites were constantly struggling to resist the, the, the sinful lifestyles that the pagans uh, uh, practice. You know, and without a godly leader, they always, always failed. But godly Ehud had a weapon, and he had the determination to defeat evil with that weapon and to do what was right. He used his hobbit sword, and he killed evil by killing the head of evil, the Moab, Moabite king. You, know, you and I, we got a weapon. We got a special weapon too. In fact, we have a full set of armor that we can use to fight and resist our enemy, Satan, and our flesh and the evil of this world. Let's look at a description of this, this armor, continuing in Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 17. Therefore, put on, because of the evil that we face, here's what you do, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. When everything's done, you're still standing. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Defensive weapons. And here's a, you know, this was the first century, so when people thought of defensive things and armor, they thought of the Roman soldier. And so, of course, you and I don't see Roman soldiers around or on TV anymore. Uh, but for them, that, that was their image, so that's the image Paul used. Um, and so as we look at the, the, this picture of a Roman soldier, we see the armor that protected him, and he uses that to illustrate 
our spiritual armor, armor like truth, God's word, um, the truth of God, righteousness, living a right life, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, um, faith, faith is what saves us and keeps us strong as it grows stronger and stronger and stronger, S salvation, just the hope of knowing we're saved. And that was, those are defensive weapons. And then there's one offensive weapon, the Word of God, which is described as a sword. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 describes it as a double-edged sword, just like Ehud's little hobbit sword. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, as was with Israel, God calls you and me to resist evil. For us, it's not the Moabites. For us, it's not the, some, some pagan religion out there and idols, false idols and, and, and things like that. For us, it's the evil we faced uh, just in life, uh, and, and that evil in, the, in our lives that surrounds us in our culture is just as destructive as the evil that the Israelites faced, because any evil, no matter where it comes from, pulls us away from our relationship with God. It dilutes it. It makes us insensitive to evil, and therefore, uh, to, to, and therefore, makes us insensitive to God. It divides us. Evil divides us. It dilutes. It distracts our commitment to God. We no longer think of God as important as we should when evil is influencing our lives. So it's not a fat king that we face, but maybe it's the desire for a fat wallet that, that distracts us from God. Maybe it's sexual immorality that we participate in on the internet or on television or in a relationship that we're in. Uh, maybe it's the desire for leisure that keeps us from worshiping with our spiritual family. Maybe it's um, the obsession with the accumulation of stuff or of sports. Uh, maybe it's selfishness and greed that keeps us from giving our time and our money in service to God. Maybe it's the constant focus on self that keeps us from seeing and caring about reaching out to others who are in need. We're so busy putting ourselves first that we never think about others. Evil comes in different forms, and we see it every day. It's all around us. And there's only one way to defeat the evil we face. You know, as we face this evil world that, that we must live in, if we're going to be successful in the battle, we need to put on the armor of God. We need to put on truth, embrace truth. There's all kinds of truth out there, but there's only one godly truth, and we must embrace it no matter what the world calls truth. Our truth must come from the Word of God, no matter how much it contradicts, contradicts our culture, no matter how much people make fun of us because we embrace it or ridicule us 
We must put on righteousness, a determination to live a right life, the kind of life God wants us to live. We must embrace the gospel and share it with others uh, because it's their only hope and, and embrace it ourselves in our own lives. We must, we must put on the shield of faith. Uh, faith is what protects us. It, it's, it what's, it's what keeps the arrows of evil from penetrating us. And we must make that shield stronger and stronger and stronger like we talked about with faith boosters before. And of course, salvation is our hope, and, and it's the hope of all mankind. We must embrace that, embrace that hope, and share it with others. Uh, and where do we get this armor? Well, we get it from uh, this, this, the weapon that we have. The weapon that we have, the double-edged sword, the Word of God. That's where all of that armor comes from. The Word of God, or the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and as we read the Word of God, and as we meditate upon it, and as we apply the Word of God to our lives every day, the Holy Spirit then, with the armor that we discover in the Word of God, helps us defeat the evil we face. It's the only way we can be victorious. You know, Ehud kept his weapon discreetly hidden on his right thigh, until he needed it. There it was, right there. Until he needed it. You know, here's what I've discovered. Uh, in our modern world, with my pocket computer, you know, I don't have to carry my great big leather-bound King James around with me everywhere. Uh, I, got, I got my weapon right here. Uh, it's called uh, um, U-Version. And, and there's all kinds of other programs as well. But uh, with, with my little pocket computer, I can pull up God's Word anytime I need it. It's right there. There's the book of Psalm we were talking about in Sunday school. Right there in my little hand, and I, and I can keep it hidden right in my pocket, right back here. Uh, or you could carry your little pocket testament around, or, or your big leather-bound King James Version if you wanted to. But we have the Word of God right here. Um, uh, access to it to use to fight evil anytime everywhere we go and we need to get into the habit of pulling it out and reading it you know if you're if you're dealing with the temptation of evil in your life keep this handy and and pull it out and read it as you think you might be facing temptation before you face it and be reminded of what god's will is in our lives uh, i need to do it you need to do it it's our weapon that where we find the armor of God, um, we can and we must defeat evil in our lives. Or, folks, it's going to drag us away. Evil is going to drag us away from God if we don't defeat it. But we can defeat it because we have the Holy Spirit as our leader living inside of us that we talked about last week. Uh, and with God's Word, whether it's our our, our leather Bible or our pocket Bible, uh, with God's Word and with the armor of God that we wear every day, we can defeat evil, and we must. We must. The very large and hungry king of evil is waiting out there to take us down. Let's get armed up. Let's get ready to defeat him.
Are you with me? Let's do it. Let's do it. Father God, I thank you so much for uh, the story that illustrates to us uh, just how uh, much you want us to serve you and to be faithful to you. And no matter how far away we fall, uh, when we cry out to you, you come to us. And you're ready to forgive us, and you're ready to be on our side. And you do that for us today as Christians. Um, we thank you for the salvation and hope we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but as a saved person, as we were talking about in the book of James on Wednesday nights, uh, a saved person, a, a person of faith, is one that serves you, that serves you with good works. Uh, and so, Father, help us to, uh, to develop a faith that is so strong that evil cannot penetrate us. Uh, and there's only one way to do that, and that's through using our weapon, the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God that, um, that shows us the way, that gives us the strength we need. And with the leadership of the Holy Spirit, like Ehud, we can defeat evil. So help us uh, to just be aware, be ready, be prepared. Uh, as we live for you. Father, thank you for this great story, and we just pray we can uh, apply the lessons to our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.